Everyone here just walked into something new. Yeah, you walked into something new. It's a new year. Amen? And a new year is filled with possibilities. It's filled with promise. It's filled with hope. Question for you tonight. What possibilities are you considering as you've entered 2016? I know that you've thought about that, even as you've been eating pumpkin pie and cheesecake and candy till you can't have no more. But what are the possibilities that you are considering? What is your hope for 2016 and beyond? You might be thinking, this is the year that I get it all together. Amen? <laughs> this, is, this is the year that we get it all together. This is the year that I lose the weight or get in shape. This is the year that I get in shape financially. This is the year that I find happiness and fulfillment. I believe all of these are possible through Christ. Amen? And the opportunity he has given to each and every one of us. What's that? To live each day in the newness of life that he has given to you. Wow, what a, what a proposition. What a resolution for the beginning of 2016. To live every day in the newness of life that he has given to you. As Christians, not only is it a new year, but we've been given newness of life in him and we need to walk in it. Amen? We need to walk in it. Many of you perhaps have made New Year's resolutions. Some of you have not done that. Whichever camp that you are, are in concerning New Year's resolutions, a new year does provide opportunity for reflection, for evaluation, for refining our focus. The new year provides an opportunity for making sure our spiritual compass is set to true north. Tonight, we're going to look at three things that we need to walk in in 2016 in order to walk in the newness of life that Christ has given to you. Three things that we're going to look at. If you're taking note, you can, have, uh, you can write these down. The first one is this, a new person. Walk in the new person that you are in him. Let's look down at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17, and take a look at this. Paul said this to the church at Corinth, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Christ, you are a new person a new creation. You may not think of yourself as new. You look at the physical you and you think the years are starting to catch up with me. And uh, wherever you are in your life, you may think that unless you're 20. And if you're 20, just God bless you tonight. Amen. <laughs> just God bless you. We love you to pieces. We appreciate you. But one day your back will hurt too. Amen. But see, all of that is looking at things physically. That is looking at the physical situation. It is thinking materially. 
As Christians, we need to think spiritually. And this can be hard to do because we are in a material world. Yes, Madonna, Madonna had it partially correct. We are living in a material world. Yes, we are living in a material world, but we're also living in a spiritual world. And so Sting and the police also had it partially correct. You are spirits in a material world. Amen? You are spirits in a material world. And that is why Paul says what he says here in verse 16. He's saying that we're no longer to look at things merely from a physical point of view. No longer to only look at things purely from a material point of view. Of view. We don't think, he, he, look at what he says there in verse 16. He says, therefore, from now on, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. According to the physical nature that, that they have, we regard no one in that way anymore. Christian people, people who have come into life in Christ. We're, we're not just looking at, at the people around us in the fellowship, people that we know that are Christians, that are following Christ in their life. We're no longer merely looking at that from a, from a physical standpoint, from a material standpoint. We don't think any, about anyone from a worldly point of view. We think of everyone from a spiritual point of view, a godly point of view. And this is what Paul is telling the church at Corinth. Now, of course, this is you know, from the commentaries and from the biblical studies of it, Corinth is perhaps one of the most, uh, the church that was concentrated on the flesh the most. I mean, they were living in, you know, the, the Las Vegas of that time. I mean, you know, there was a saying, you know, that they had during this time, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And, and, um, and, and so, you know, this was the, the city that Paul is writing to, and, and he's looking at this, and he's addressing the Christians, the people who have come out of the world, who've been set free, who've been given a new life in Christ, and he's saying, look, we're, we're not looking at this thing anymore just purely from a physical standpoint. And there's really two reasons that in this text, and we don't have time to get into the entire context of, of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tonight, because I'm going to take you to a couple more passages, but there's two reasons really why we're no longer looking at things merely from a physical standpoint. The first one is obvious, and we've read it here in the passages that we've read. You and the other Christians you know are new in the Spirit. You're no longer just a physical tent. You're no longer just a physical house. Paul talked about earlier in the chapter. You are a new person in Christ. You're a brand new spirit man, spirit woman, and you are new in the spirit. For this reason, we no longer regard anyone just merely according to the flesh. Secondly, the other point that he's made in this, in this book, 2 Corinthians, is that this physical tent anyway is wasting away. He's, he's made the point about how the, 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 the physical tent that we're in, the physical house that we're in, is fading away. It's, 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 it's moving towards that time when we're going to move beyond this physical tent. And, and that's why even in our own lives that we, Paul says, we groan not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed in that house, that, 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 that house that God has for us, he says, eternal in the heavens. 
Amen? And so this is what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth and what God would say to us is that we're no longer looking at things merely from a physical, from a worldly, from a material standpoint. We're Christians, we've been set free, and we've been given life in the Spirit, and because of this, we need to begin to look at things from a spiritual standpoint, with spiritual eyes, and we need to look at our brothers and sisters from that standpoint as well. That when I look at you as a believer, that I'm not just saying, hey, here's uh, you know, Ingrid, but here's Ingrid who's a, a, a spirit being, someone who, who Christ has, has made new in the spirit. Amen? So let's look at each other in the spirit. Let's make a practice of that. I think that would be an awesome thing to do this year is to, you know, and sometimes it can be tough. Amen? I'm not saying this is easy. You know, you know, sometimes these things can be tough, but what a goal to have for this year that as you walk your walk with the Lord this year and you're rubbing shoulders with the body of Christ, it may be your spouse, it may be your family, it may be your friends, maybe a neighbor, maybe someone here at South Coast, but to look at them as Paul is instructing us here to regard them no longer according to the flesh, but according to the spirit to see that they're a spirit person and that they've been given a new spirit in Christ. Now, I don't know what age will be in heaven. I don't know that there's any passage of Scripture that talks about, you know, well, we'll all be 20 in, 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 in heaven. You know, when we get up there and it's all this, and, and it's bing, 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 and here, here you have a new house, and, and, and you're 20, and we're all 20, and we're all standing around partying, and we're all 20, and we can, you know, isn't that great? You sign up for that? Have you seen this commercial? I believe it's an insurance commercial, and they're all kind of at this party, this banquet. Peter Pan flies in and says, hey, look, you don't look like a day over 70. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's like still 12, right? And I don't know what age we'll be in heaven, but I do know that what Paul's saying here is that as Christians, as brothers and sisters, that we're brand new in the Spirit. And we're not to look at each other anymore only from a, from a physical standpoint. Amen? Amen? Now, he goes on in the verse to explain what has happened. He explains that he once only regarded Christ that way in the flesh. He says, here's, here's, what, here's what, 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 how it was. We once knew Christ only in the, in the physical, in the flesh. And that's exactly how Paul viewed Christ. Paul did not accept Christ as the Messiah. He was a Pharisee. He sat under Gamaliel. He was, he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. You know the resume from Philippians 2, I believe. I believe. Anyway, you know where it is, where Paul writes out his resume. And he says, hey, I'm a Pharisee, a Pharisee. I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. And he, when he saw Christ, and I believe that he probably did see Christ, he says, well, here's just a man. Here's a man that's gone crazy. Here's a man that's leading other people astray. Here's a man. And Paul says, we, we once looked at Christ this way. But no longer because now our eyes have been changed and now we realize that Christ was not just a mere man, but that he's God in the flesh and he's come to do everything that he did in giving us and making the way possible so that you and I could be made new in the spirit, that we could be made alive in the spirit. 
So we no longer view Christ that way. And if we no longer view Christ that way, we're no longer to view our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because this, this, the, the power of the resurrection is this. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises us from the dead and gives us life in him. And so if Christ is not to be viewed merely from the physical standpoint, our brothers and sisters in Christ are not, also not to be viewed only from the physical standpoint. You say, Pastor Charles, I got it. I got it. I hear what you're saying. What's the point? The point is that you need to look at your own life from this standpoint. You need to see your own self as the spirit person that God has made you to be. He's brought you from death to life. He's brought you out of a pit. He's brought you up out of a slimy pit, and he set your foot up on a rock. He's made you a new creation. He's given you a life in him, life to the full, life abundantly, to be blessed, to be a blessing, to, to speak words of life into other people's lives. Amen? Amen? We need to see the reality of that. And wow, if we walked in that, you could shut the Bible right now and have the altar call. Amen? And, and just say, hey, what a powerful point for 2016. You are a spirit person. Just as sure as I'm standing here, just as sure as you're sitting there, if you're in Christ, you're a spirit person. You're a new person in him. And we need to walk in the salvation that we've given, the newness of life. We need to walk in, in, in this newness of life that we've received. And let the newness of life change your perspective in this coming year. Let the newness of life that you have, that is the present reality, if indeed you are in Christ, let that change your perspective for each new day that comes about. Let it change your perspective on others. Let it change your perspective on your own life, on your own future. Amen? So the first thing is we need to walk in the new person that we are in Christ. Secondly, tonight, I want to draw your attention to Lamentations 3, and we need to walk in a new day of mercies, a new day of mercies. I want to take you to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, and I do believe I'll have it up on the screen for you, in case you weren't able to turn there very quickly. It says this, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. So the second point tonight is that we need to walk in a new day of mercies, a new day of God's mercies. And when is that day? Well, every day. <laughs> Amen. Every day that you wake up, the mercies of God are new. They're new today. As Chris said earlier tonight, they're new today and they'll be new again tomorrow. Amen. Because he fails not. He's faithful to every generation that will call upon him. And we need to see that. We need to walk in this. In these couple of verses, we have a powerful promise and an amazing truth that God's mercies are new every morning. As you walk through life, sometimes we walk through, as Psalm 23 states, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's not always a primrose path. It's not always a cakewalk. It's not always an easy life that we live. Sometimes, as Psalm 23 says, we walk through the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. 
Or as Psalm 84 says, sometimes we walk through the Valley of Baca. Read that's an awesome psalm on worshiping God and living for God in your life. But he talks about making pilgrimage to worship God. And on the way to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, he had to come through the Valley of Baca. What was that? It's a valley of weeping. So sometimes you may find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death. Other times you may find yourself in the valley of weeping, the valley of Baca. Sometimes we walk through times that are tough and terrible. And those terrible times are things that are sometimes a result of what others have done to us. And sometimes they're a result of what we have done. Sometimes we've wrought those terrible, tough times on ourselves because we've sinned. We've perhaps disobeyed the Lord and, and we've brought that terrible time on us as a result of the decisions that we've made. Sometimes we bring tough situations on ourselves because of our own sin, our own pride. Now, the longer you walk in those valleys without availing yourself to the mercies of God that are new every day, you will find yourself sinking lower and lower into despair. Do I need, I might need to repeat that one. The longer you walk in those valleys without availing yourself to the mercies of God that are new every day, you find yourself sinking lower and lower into despair. And if you stay there, you'll find yourself in the pit of despair. Yeah, I, I have to admit, when I wrote that, I was thinking of the Princess Bride too. Amen. The Princess Bride. The pit of despair. Don't even think about getting out of here. That's wrong, right? We need to think about what God's going to do to bring us out of the pit, bring us out of the valley of Baca, bring us out of the place of weeping to a place of rejoicing. If you stay there, you find yourself in despair. And despair leads to hopelessness. And hopelessness leads to depression, which leads to bitterness and ultimately ruin. You may, may find yourself looking at the valley of death or the valley of weeping. What do you do? What do you do? Jeremiah wrote these, these verses in the book of Lamentations. He wrote them he wrote Lamentations looking down on the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed because God had allowed Israel's enemies, Judah's enemies, to come in and destroy the city. And here, Jeremiah is writing Lamentations and he's looking down upon the city and he's looking at the ruin of what it's become. And he's lamenting. He's weeping over the city. In fact, the opening lines of Lamentations, Lamentations 1.1 says this. I'll have it up on the screen. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. That's the opening line of the book. And it goes on from there. In the first chapter of Lamentations, Jeremiah wrote that the gates were left desolate. The priests were in despair. The young woman, women had been ravaged. And the city was left in bitterness. Can you imagine as Jeremiah looking over the city of Jerusalem and remembering the city the way that it was? 
Can you imagine Jeremiah looking over the city, seeing it in ruin, and remembering the hustle and bustle of the, ver- the merchants? People buying and selling in the streets, the hustle and bustle. Or perhaps viewing the worshipers as they'd come to the temple to bring sacrifice or come to the feasts that were commanded in the Old Testament. Coming to worship God, but yet now Jeremiah is viewing it in its desolation. There, when you go to Israel, when you go to Israel, you will go to Calvary. You will go to Calvary, and you will go to Golgotha. Calvary or Golgotha, the same thing. Golgotha is the place of the skull. Calvary is actually Latin for skull. That's why, you know, Calvary Chapel was, I was you know, there's actually a young guy out in Montana. He actually, he actually has a, a young Calvary Chapel. He actually calls it Skull Church. And, um, yeah, you got to look him up. Levi Lusco out there, tearing it up out in Montana. And you, you go to Calvary, you go to Golgotha. Now, it's a hill. It's a hill on the top of the ridgeline of Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was a ridgeline. And it kind of had three points that made its way all the way up to Golgotha to Calvary. So this is the ridgeline of Mount Moriah. And there in that place, there is on the site of Golgotha a cave that you will visit. It's, it's called Jeremiah's Grotto. And this cave, known as Jeremiah's Grotto, comprises a part of the face of the skull, hence the name Golgotha. Because as you look at the cliff, with these caves that, that, that there are in the cave, in the cliff, there is the appearance of a skull. Now, I actually believe that there's a, there's a reason why there, 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 there could be a resemblance to the skull there, a skull, a rather, a rather large skull. Because if you read the story of David and Goliath, Many people don't read this far in the story, but it's honestly, it, it intrigues me as exciting, as exciting as the first part of the story. The question is, what did J- uh, David do with Goliath's head after he cut it off? The Bible tells us that he cut off Goliath's head and he took it to a place that was, became Jerusalem. And he buried it. And I believe that Golgotha, Gaul, it's actually Goliath of Gath. It's the place of not just any skull. It's the place of the skull. And this is where Jeremiah is writing this lamentation of the destruction of the city. He's, he's seeing that the, the, the city is, is in ruins. The walls destroyed, the buildings leveled, and and from this vantage point, looking down over the city, he wrote the book. And as as I thought about these things and these verses, it jumped out to me something absolutely incredible about that, that this is the place where Jeremiah is lamenting over the ruins of the city, and then he's writing in the third lamentation, of the hope that would later 
be ultimately purchased on that exact spot, that Jesus Christ would carry his own cross up that same hill and shed his blood, and his blood would run down on that same hill where, where Jeremiah wept over the city and lamented for what it, had, what it was. But through the cross, Christ has given us hope. He's given us hope, and he's given us mercies. He's given us love. So in the very place of Jeremiah's lament is the very place that Christ provided the, the greatest love that it was ever demonstrated on the face of the earth. It's the very place that the love of God poured out for you, for me. It's the very place that his grace pours out, the, the very place that his mercy pours out. And here Jeremiah writes, in Jeremiah 3, turn it back, Lamentations 3. Through the Lord's, though the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So even in the midst of desolation, even in the, de the midst of desolation, the Spirit is writing of our hope in Christ. Amen? And that's an incredible thing to understand. So tonight or any day this year, if you find yourself in despair, Remember, his mercies are new every morning. Remember that. Remember they're new, and remember that what, where that verse was written from, and the despair and the lamentation that it was written in, on the very spot that the mercy of God poured out over your life. Wow. If you find yourself in the defeat of sin, remember his mercies are new for you on that day. If you find yourself in, the, in depression, remember that the love of Christ is available to you in that moment. You need only to turn to him. Turn to your God, the Lord of your salvation. So we need to walk. In 2016, we need to walk in the newness of life in a new day of mercies. Amen? Amen. And lastly tonight, the last point, if you're continuing to take notes and you're still with me. Amen? Yes. You still with me? Yes. We need to walk in a new commandment, a new commandment. Let's look at John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, lastly tonight, we need to walk in a new commandment. It's a new commandment. We need to walk in, in this new year in the new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. Now, I just want to give you a quick context of this particular chapter. The context of this passage is Jesus and the disciples eating the Passover meal together. It was the night that he was betrayed. It was the night he was arrested. But here he is celebrating the feast of Passover. He's eating the Passover with his disciples. And this text in John 13 tells us after dinner, after the dinner, he got up from the table and he girded himself with a towel and he went to each disciple and he began to wash their feet. And you know the story. 
as he began to wash their feet, and I believe it was Peter who said, no, 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 Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you are not clean. He says, okay, well then, then wash all of me, everything. He says, no, 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 it's okay. Just if, you're, if I wash your feet, you'll be okay, Peter. He says, oh, he's zealous, amen. I, I love Peter. I mean, a lot of people give Peter a hard time, but I, I got to love Peter. And so they're eating the, eating the meal and he's washing their feet. Now, this was incredible in terms of Jesus taking the lowest role of service in that culture, a foot washer. He humbled himself on that night, the night he would be arrested later, the night that he would be uh, brought into custody, betrayed by Judas. On that night, before all that happened, he eats the Passover, he washes the disciples' feet, and so he does this incredible thing. Right before he goes to the cross, he, he, he humbles himself to the lowest position in the culture, the foot washer. And then, and then, of course, he would go to the cross and humble himself even further. But, but Jesus, what Jesus says here is he says, I give you a new commandment to love one another. Now, I want to read to you the first verse. Of the, of the chapter. And I have always loved this verse. It says this, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is the beginning of the context of him celebrating the feast with his disciples. And I want to draw your attention to this last phrase. He loved them to the end. He, it, 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 there's other translations. The idea there of to the end is, is to the fullest extent. He loved them to the fullest extent. He loved them in every which way that they could be loved. He loved them perfectly. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the fullest extent. He loved them taking upon the role of the lowest Position in the culture, that of a foot washer. He loved them to the end, and then the next day he goes to the cross. He loved them to the end. And so, now having loved them in every specific way, having taken care of their needs, ha having fed them, having, having done everything for them, showing them the way, he turns to them and he says, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Now, is it a new commandment? I mean, is it a brand spanking new commandment? I mean, did Jesus just pull this out of thin air and say, here's a new commandment I'm giving you? A specific Greek word here for new is a word that Im it, it implies... It, it implies a freshness. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's not a, something different. It's not something kind of out of left field. But there's a freshness to the commandment. There, there's something that I, I'm, I'm bringing now to you, this new commandment. To love one another. Whereas the Old Testament demanded that men should love the, their neighbors as themselves, the new commandment is that they should love 
the brothers better than themselves and die for their friends. See, because the context is that now Jesus is serving them, taking the lowest possible role in the culture, and then the next day he's walking out the, the, the full perfection of love, which is laying down his life for his friends and his brothers. And so he's saying, a new commandment I have given you. He says, a new commandment I give you that you would love one another as I have loved you. The command to love wasn't new, but the extent of the love just displayed by Jesus was new, as would be the display on the cross. Love was now newly defined from his example. Love was now newly defined from his example. So when Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you would love one another, there's a new context that you can now see through Christ and what he did in loving. Here is God in the flesh washing the disciples' feet. Here is God in human flesh walking across up a hill and being crucified on that cross. In fact, John writes to us in his epistle, 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. He says this, you'll see it on the screen, by this we know what love is. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is, you know, who was it, foreigner? They said, I want to know what love is. They sang, you know. This is how we know. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So it's a new commandment. The new commandment is an all-inclusive kind of commandment. Remember when Jesus was asked by the lawyer, he was asked that question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And of course, it was a lawyer, he's trying, to, he's trying to corner Jesus and the whole thing. And Jesus gave the answer, quoting from Deuteronomy, that was this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus he finishes it up by saying that on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. On these two. Love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I love how Jesus simplifies everything for us. God had given 10 commandments, 613 laws in the Torah. But then man complicated it by the Pharisees adding to it some 20,000 other observances in the Talmud. So we went from 10 to 613 to 20,000 things that we're supposed to keep, you know, and keep track of all this. It is a mess. And, and, and so man has completely complicated it. And Jesus simplifies it but listen jesus told the pharisees he, he says you put a heavy burden on the people now you know people like to think of jesus going around and being all nice to people and and he was and he was loving and he was perfect but you know what he said some pretty i mean i've been looking at some of the things jesus said this this it, just as i've gone through the scriptures this year i mean and jesus you know, Jesus called some people, he called, uh, he called the Pharisees sons of snakes. 
brood of vipers. He says in another place in, in Matthew 23, he said to them, he says, you Pharisees, you go out to win somebody to the law, to, to proselytize someone to, to, to the law, to Judaism, and, he, and Jesus says, and you make them in the process twice a son of hell. What? Yeah, Jesus, look it up. Twice a son of hell. A son of hell. Twice. And, and what, what God doesn't like is God doesn't like other people putting burdens on his people and giving them extra stuff and making it harder for them and bringing them down and creating all kinds of other hoops to, which to jump through. God simplified. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you, when you, when you love God, you're, you're not going to make for yourself any graven image. You're not going to take his na name in vain. You're going to honor him by having a day of worship. You're going to do those things. The first four commandments are all about loving God. The last six commandments are all about loving your neighbor. Now, if you love your neighbor and focus on loving your neighbor as Jesus taught us to do, you're not going to be sitting there going, now, wait a second. Don't lie. Don't kill them. Don't steal their stuff. No, you're loving them. And if you're loving them, you're fulfilling the commandment. And this is what Jesus said. You don't have to worry about all those things. If you obey the commandment, love one another, even as I love you. Now, this is, this is the supreme love. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a giving love. And then Jesus finishes it off. He says, by this you will know. By this people will know that you are my disciples. This, this is it. Love is the mark of fellowship, the fellowship of true believers. And all other criteria are secondary, strictly secondary. Love is the badge of Christian discipleship. It, it's not, and, and I'm all about knowing the Bible through and through, but if you have, he says, if, if you, Paul says to this church of Corinth, he says, if, if you know stuff, if you have gifts, if you can speak in tongues, if you can do all kinds of crazy stuff and you don't have love, you're a clanging gong, you're a breaking cymbal. You're a, you're a cacophony of sound that's out of line in God's order if you don't have love. And so that's the kind of love that he wants us to have, amen? amen? That he wants us to have for each other. And this will be the sign to the world that we are truly the disciples of Jesus Christ when we have this kind of love. It's, 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 I've been quoting a bunch of music tonight, so I'll quote one more. It's a love of another kind, amen? Amy Grant. It's a love of another kind, amen? It's a different kind of love. And we have the opportunity to walk in it each and every day of 2016 and beyond as God carries us through. And so let's resolve tonight to make 2016 and beyond a time where we're going to walk in the new commandment. Now let me close it up. There are three things. Three things we talked about tonight that we need to walk in every day this year. We walk in the fact that we are a new person in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We walk in a new day of God's mercies. And we walk in the new commandment of loving one another with the love 
of Jesus Christ.